save me. Is what the Apostle Peter cried as he sank in those waters, those rough waters of the Sea of Galilee. Our Lord had asked him to come to him walking on the water. But when Peter saw the troubles around him, he began to sink. And for the past four weeks, we have used this as a theme as you and I have studied together of, Lord, save me from my sins. Lord, save me so that I may trust you more. Lord, save me so that I may repent of my sins and change my life. Lord, save me so that I can confess you and be baptized for the remission of my sins. I want to, for just a moment, to focus you to another passage of Scripture where the words, Lord, save me, are found. This time it is not just the words of Peter, but it is the words of the apostles together and those with the Lord. In Matthew chapter 8, beginning with verse 23, we read, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? O oh, you of little faith. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? If you will observe, they were with the Lord in the boat. They're not like Peter walking on the water seeing the waves round about them. They are in the boat and they are in the boat with the Lord. They needed more faith in him. They needed to realize that where the Lord was, there was safety. There was protection. There were blessings. The last thing they needed to do was to abandon ship. I can tell you that if I am in the water and the water is rough and the ship is not sinking, I'm staying in the boat. I think most of us would consider that to be rational thinking. Those who are with the Lord in the church do not need to abandon ship. It is the wrong thing that if you are a Christian and the Lord has saved you to then turn back and go to the dangerous place where you once were. If you'll let me put it like this, Peter, once you get in the boat, stay in the boat. Don't get back out there where the waters are rough. We need to realize the value of remaining safe in the Lord. This morning, what I would like for us to do is to look at three very brief ideas. The first one is that of conditional salvation. Number two, I want us to look at Christian growth. And then finally, courageous, or you may want to call it confident living. Let's begin with the idea of this conditional salvation. 
I've had many friends over the years who have been part of various religious bodies, and they have made a statement to me something like this. Once I was saved, I don't have to worry anymore. And they will often phrase it like this. You know the Bible teaches, once saved, always saved. Or they will express it by saying, I believe in the doctrine of eternal security. The perseverance of the saints. And quite often, those of you who attend funerals will hear a man who is preaching get up and say, this person gave their life to the Lord X number of years ago, and for that reason we are confident that they are saved. My question is, what does the Scripture say? As I open my Bible, you open your Bible, what do those Scriptures say? Well, here's what we read in Hebrews 10, verses 38 and 39. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back into perdition, but those who have faith to the saving of the soul. Do you understand the meaning of the term, the just shall live by faith? It's not as if there's something we do and then we're done it's something that we began a process, if you will, of moving toward our ultimate eternal salvation. In Second Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, Peter was attempting to try to impress upon those people the danger of going backwards. He said, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are, now notice this word, again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog has returned to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Notice, if a person returns to those things that he left, the last state is worse than the first. How could that be if, if a person is once saved and they're always saved? How could they ever go back to that which they left? Listen to Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 through 10. And I would suggest to you there's great blessing in this idea that salvation is conditional. Because not only does it have the negative side that says, if I'm righteous and I go back into wickedness, then I'm lost. But it also says that if I'm lost and I go into righteousness, then I can be saved. Jeremiah spoke, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil... I will relent of the disaster that I said I would bring upon it, or I thought to bring upon it. 
In the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it. If it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. You see, it's all based on the way you and I respond to what God tells us to do. But perhaps the shortest, the most succinct statement of this is found in Jude verse 5. And here's the way Jude puts it. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who do not, did not believe. Making it apply to us. God saves us from our sins when we are obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we must continue to live in it. Or like the children of Israel, we will find ourselves being destroyed even after being saved. Now, having recognized that, we have to recognize that the Christian life is a struggle against sin. For instance, I want to go back to the passage that Brother Tyler read to us just a few moments ago. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, he describes, But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle of sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourself in heaven. Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, that having done the will of God, you may receive the promise. I'm in a world, you're in a world where we face challenges every day. These people faced a different kind of challenge. People were breaking in their homes, taking their goods. Many of them had their lives threatened. Now, you and I may not have that. But we do have people who mock and belittle us for our faith. There are many people who are looking at us and, and pointing the finger and saying, you people just don't know what life is all about. But what the Hebrew writer reminded us is, is that you look at them, you look at us, we have need of endurance that having done the will of God, we may receive the promise. In 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul put it like this, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Or in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, he begins by saying, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children... These things I write to you that you may not sin. 
And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You know what I learn from reading that passage? For me to deny that I have sinned in the past, or for me to deny that I have the possibility and maybe even the probability of sinning in the present, I am contradicting God. As when I was a child, my mother and daddy would say, don't you dispute my word. That's disputing God and saying that sin... Now, why does God have this written? So that we may not sin. But look at what he says in verse 1 of chapter 2. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It is a struggle against sin. All of us are facing that struggle. But we understand that we have an advocate to plead for us. One should be humble enough to realize that not only did he need God initially to forgive his sins, but he continually needs the blood of Christ applied to his life. So I began by understanding conditional salvation is what the Bible teaches. Second of all, it's essential that I see that Christian growth is necessary. Either grow or die. It's about the time of year for us to start putting plants in the ground. If you put a plant in the ground and you water it, you fertilize it, you care for it, it's going to grow. On the other hand, if you put a plant in the ground and you ignore it and you leave it alone and you allow the elements, the dryness of the, of the ground or other things to take place, it will die. Spiritually speaking, if you become a child of God and you stop, you quit, you will die. Christians have to grow in their knowledge. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Think of a child. You either give that child the sustenance of milk and let him grow, or he's going to die. A companion passage, Hebrews 5 verse 12 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and have come such as need of milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern between good and evil, or both good and evil. Folks, here's the way it is. You start out and you have the milk of the Word, the easier things to absorb and to digest. As you grow, you chew on more difficult things that, to digest, to absorb. As Christians, we have to grow, and we have to grow to the point somewhere along the line we can talk to someone else and teach them what we ourselves know. Hebrews 10, or excuse me, 2 Timothy 2, verse 15 says, be diligent. The American, or the King James says, study 
to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If I am not able to take God's word eventually and understand Old Testament and New Testament, understand things that those who are not Christians are obligated to do and those who are Christians are obligated, I should be ashamed if I've not grown to that point. When Paul wrote Timothy, a very young man, but yet at the same time one charged with preaching the gospel, he said, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to those who believe in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. I want you to drop down with me to verse 15. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in doing them, or continue in them, for in so doing you will save both yourself and them that hear you. He's saying you've got to take your actions and what you know and grow in them. 2 Peter 3, verses 17 and 18, if you've got this kind of knowledge you will beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness. But you see, you don't just grow in knowledge. You must also grow in good works. I think it's wonderful for people to open their Bibles, to read it, to understand it, to grasp it, to know it. But then you've got to do it. So many people feel like, as long as I know what I ought to be doing, that's good enough. But no, it's not. In James chapter 2, verse 14, James writes, What does it profit, my brethren, if a man or someone says, I have faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warned and filled, but do not give them the things needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You see, I can have all of the head knowledge that my mind can absorb and that all that I can learn, but if it doesn't translate into doing something, it's a dead faith, an unprofitable faith, a vain faith. In John 13, verse 17, Jesus said, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. In Matthew 5, verse 16, Let your light show shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In Ephesians 2, verse 10, He says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God made us to do good works. That's why He created the church, the body of Christ, to be able to do these good works. But perhaps one of the best sections of God's Word to deal with this is found in Paul's letter to Titus. Paul had left Titus in Crete to set in order the things that were lacking and appoint elders in every church. 
He said, I want you to set in order the things that are lacking. And you begin to try to say, well, what does he say that is lacking? Notice with me, four times. Chapter 1, verse, or chapter 2, verse 7. In all things show yourself a pattern of good works. In doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. In verse 14, who gave himself that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. You go to chapter 3, verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these are the things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable for men. I want you to do this constantly. That means that if you're going to preach the gospel somewhere along the line, you have constantly got to be reminding the congregation that being a Christian involves doing good works. Chapter 3, verse 14, And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. You see, as you look at that, salvation is conditional. Yes, I understand that. And there must be with that Christian growth where I grow in my knowledge, where I grow in my service to God. And Hebrews 10.24 says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. We ought to be pushing, urging, helping one another. To be better at this. Now number three. Courageous or confident living. For those who faithfully remain loyal to God. There is a promised rest. I don't want you to get the idea. When you teach the idea of conditional salvation. That we must live our lives constantly in fear and trembling. That we must live our lives where we feel as if, I, I just hope I can be saved. Now there's confidence. Confidence based upon the fact that Jesus died for our sins. And that we are walking with him daily. Or to use the illustration we began with, the Lord's in the boat with us. And we're in his boat and with that, there is safety. As I approach the scriptures, I find that there is a promised rest for the people of God. In Revelation 14, verse 13, John writes, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. There is holding out for us a time of retirement. Oh, what a, what a thought. Some of you younger folks are looking saying, I hope one of these days I can reach a point where I can retire. I don't have to go to my job anymore and I know that my provisions will be there. No greater retirement thought than that of heaven. 
In Hebrews 4, verses 9 and 10, and I will tell you the context begins back in verse 1, and he talks about that great promised rest, but he says here, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. You know, when God finished it, he completed it, he rested in creation, and God said there's a time for you when you can rest from your labors. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse 11 or 12 and following, Peter writes, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know them and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that I must shortly put off my tent just as my Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. I want you to know that dying is not the worst thing. In fact, it's a transition from here to there. Paul put it very well in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 6. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. But now here's the, the kicker for us. And not only, or to me only, but to also all those who have loved his appearing. You see, Paul, we would say, look what he accomplished. Yes. And look what he received. Look what you can accomplish and look what you can receive. Paul would put it very simply in Philippians 1 verse 21. For to me, to live is for Christ and to die is gain. Now summarizing all of this together. If you are not a Christian, why don't you become one? In just a moment or two. We'll sing the invitation song. I know many people may think this is just a tradition, it's just a, a time, but it is a time made available for you to come and say, I want to become a New Testament Christian. If you'll come to the front, I'll greet you, and after the song's over, we'll let you confess your faith in Christ and then baptize you. And there will be joy in the presence of the angels of heaven. Now for those who are Christians, if you are a wayward Christian, you need to return this morning. This is the time in which we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we're singing this song, it is to urge, to encourage, to prompt us to think seriously about our lives and our standing before our God 
And if you are not right, it would be a shame for you to walk away from an opportunity to make all things right with God. Your soul is too important to not do what you know you ought to do. As we have studied this series of lessons together, I want you to think as we sing the song about Peter as he was sinking in that water and as he called out to the Lord, Lord, save me. The desperation in his voice and the comfort that came when he grabbed a hold of the Lord's hand. You can do that this morning. Would you come while together we stand inside?